Welcome to this special edition of Construction Cashflow. I'm Stu Davidson and in this episode I've compiled notes, quotes and anecdotes from my guests from the last 20 episodes. We'll cover cash flow, procurement, contracts, mental health and much more. I know that running a construction business can be challenging. There are many things to consider and it can be easy to feel overwhelmed. But I want you to know that you're not alone. There are resources available to help you succeed. That's why I've created this community. I want to create a space where we can come together and support each other, where we can learn from each other and grow together. So to join the community, join the conversation, join the live chat, and support our mission, go to constructioncashflow.locals.com. Together, we can build a better future for the construction industry. Those lawyers had run that forum and they'd brought in a quantum expert. My advice to him would have been, forget about it. You're never going to win that. Because normally I'd sit in the background until we need to turn the heat up further. It's kind of like having somebody in your corner, you know, in the in a boxing fight. Most subcontractors, a lot of main contractors, don't really have sufficient records in order to back up a delay and disruption claim. Probably none of the subcontractors I started working with would have reviewed the T's and C's. If if you get to the end of the job and there's a claim, and there's a condition precedent in the T's and C's, and you haven't notified it, then you're you're goosed just got a phone call from the Sun newspaper and they're saying they're at the gate of the, the site and they said that you've, you guys have just killed somebody on site um, and that you're completely at fault. How do you respond? Do you understand what it is that is the process of how we operate as a business in order to protect and, and to look after health and safety? Or are you just going through the motions in terms of yeah, it's just a toolbox talk. Just sign it here. Yeah, it's the induction. Have you got any induction? Yeah, have you got your sets? Okay, you're good to go. Come on over here. It's grid line 12. It's a load of plaque. The board needs to be put there. Let's get going. What I like to call the business of safety needs to be included in the whole business as an operation. As an owner of a business, you shouldn't just be looking at the bottom line of profit and loss. You can implement business of safety in a smart way that makes you money and, and actually increases your profit. There's tips and techniques and tools there that people, if they embrace health and safety, it can actually benefit the company by the obvious one, having a reputation for being a safe company that actually delivers a quality product is in our estimation, one of the highest attributes you could be given as a company in terms of winning more work and in terms of getting your name out there. And so we're always encouraging employers to think of the business of safety as part of your overall business plan within executing a successful company that's, that has a sustainable approach for the future that's not just all about quality and uh, delivery but it's also about the delivery of safety within that product don't just concentrate on winning projects and having the big marketing guys come out and waving the flag and saying we're a great company we want this massive contract win the contract on the basis of everything and use safety as as part of that uh, to promote your business create a situation where you have brand safety 
as a value within your organization be the one that can say yeah we cost an extra bit more but look at what we what we can achieve on your projects if you want to use somebody at a lesser value and undercut us you're undercutting us based on safety but in our experience clients will pay the extra percentage if they know that they're going to have a particular company that has a reputation for safety use safety as a tool to benefit the success of your business and the profitability of the success of your business and don't look at it as if it's a direct cost that's reducing your profit don't worry about what other people think about you focus on how you feel about yourself no one can make you feel inferior without your consent the job of a lawyer isn't to show off how much law I know and how many case names I can regurgitate for you or what big words I can use. I think my job is to take all of those difficult legal concepts and distill them down into some clear advice. You know, actually, Stu, one of the reasons why I was really keen to come onto your podcast is because I, I've noticed that a few of your guests have, have made comments similar to that, that there seems to have been situations where parties might have had lawyers who have encouraged them to run a particular argument in an adjudication that was never going to succeed for example or even to go to adjudication when the claim didn't have any merit and that makes me think that that party has the wrong lawyer that's an interesting question Stu there's all these relatively new procurement methods like the alliancing contract and like the PPC TPC partnering contracts where it's all about working together so that you avoid disputes but i still see disputes under those contracts the risk of a dispute is the same under each of them the real problem is parties not entering into the contracts correctly uh, and entering into contracts that they don't understand what they need to do under them i would say that over 90 percent of the disputes that i deal with the issues have come about because of either there's a problem with the contract itself that a clause is unambiguous or there isn't even a proper contract or a document's missing from it or there's some uncertainty uh, or the issue is that the contract itself is fine but the parties have just not read it properly don't know what they're meant to do under it and have just put it in a in a drawer when they've started the project and haven't used it as the active project management tool that it's supposed to be if the NEC worked perfectly on a project, parties would get their notices in really quickly, they'd assess the risk of a compensation event, they would agree something and then move on. But actually, I see so much where there's been no notices served, the other party hasn't said anything, hasn't chased that notice, it's as though that mechanism just doesn't exist. You can have a perfect contract, but it's only going to work in practice if, if the parties actually follow it. and understand it and what their risk is under it get on my soapbox a bit here Stu. please try and get me involved earlier on in a project because if you get me involved at the beginning i can then help you avoid issues and that saves you money overall read the contract and make sure that everyone who is working on the project has also read the contract and knows what they need to do so they're going to write a contract that effectively has everything in the kitchen sink in there, whether it's necessary or not. And then they're going to they're going to basically demand that the specialist contractor has to sign up to these terms when it's actually the specialist contractor, to my mind anyway, who knows their trade best. And it should be them that dictates the terms, not the other way around. It's almost like I'm plugging somebody from the matrix. It really is.
this industry needs to change. All the mistakes that I made in the past has stood me in good stead for this particular venture. At the time when you grow a company, one of your main clients gets into liquidation, takes you effectively with them. You sit and think it's the end of the world. You, you, you feel you get through the full process of grieving. You feel like a victim. You feel resentment. You feel anger. Ultimately, now when I can reflect on it and I look back, it was probably the best thing that happened to me. I know that sounds weird, but I learned so much from the, the failure. I always wanted to build a company that made its mark within our industry. Any company will understand the, the trials and tribulations of managing your cash flow, especially in the construction industry. I always set myself wee milestones and it's, it's strange because I used to pick a company that I used to admire that done certain amount of turnover and I thought, right, that's my next target. I want to be bigger than them. Oh, we don't do any of that. We, we don't need any contracts. You know, everything's kind of spit in a handshake. Well, they're subbies. They don't need that paperwork. No, they do. They, they absolutely do. So people think if you've got a, a CIS card, then you're automatically self-employed and there's no need to have a contract. And that's absolutely not true. Just because someone says they're a subby or they uh, say they're a sole trader, that doesn't mean you're self-employed. If you've got nothing written anywhere, a judge would make a decision and they'll make a decision based on your actions. So the first error that I see when people don't have contracts, and they should have contracts, whether you're self-employing somebody, whether you've got them on a zero hours contract, whether you're employing them, you always need to have something. And whatever you don't have is open for interpretation. And that's where you get all your issues. He's broken his leg. Oh, he's worked with me for a while, so I'm going to give him pay for the next four weeks. You've just treated this person like an employee, and guess what? You made them an employee. You don't employ self-employed people. You engage self-employed people, or you appoint self-employed people. Using that word employ, if that went to an employment tribunal, if you come up more employed than not, then you've employed that person. And if your intention is not to employ, that you don't ever do it accidentally. You want to make sure they're not stealing your client. They're not going behind your back and doing it cheaper or they're not coaching your subbies or your employees and that happens quite a bit you know someone offers to pay a pound more have something in place and make it quite clear i expect you to work monday to, and if you don't these are the consequences be really clear and firm so it's about attracting the people that have the same values as you if you deal with people with respect and honesty and clarity then there's absolutely no reason when you need to, you know, to stop you from reminding them from time to time what your or their rights and obligations are under that contract. Somebody's taking a, a corporate stance. I think that's always important that we recognise that. You don't take things personally. You, know, you can argue till you're blue in the face with somebody and, and that meeting's over and, you know, you have the crack in the car park about football or whatever afterwards. And I think that's really important. And that's one of the things I like about the industry, the people. So the whole idea of, oh, we'll leave the contract in the drawer and we'll get it out if we need to. No, it should be on your desk. It should be dirty dog-eared contract that's flicked through every day. Because when you pull it out of the drawer, it's often too late. And you can never go backwards. And that collaborative party that you thought was your friend can turn on you very quickly. If you've not been doing your bits, you've nowhere to go. Deal with it. Now, dealing with it might be, you know, negotiating a better position. But don't pretend it doesn't exist because it will come back and bite you on the ass at some point. And I think that's one of the, the key problems in this industry that 
people bury their heads in the sand, wait, hope that it'll never happen, whatever it is. It does happen, and then they're in a, a blind panic. Again, it comes back to rights and obligations, understand what they are, but understand them from the outset. Don't get excited and blinded by the prospect of a nice shiny £100,000 order, let's say. You might get paid £100,000, it might cost you 150 because you've actually signed up to X, Y and Z or you're on the hook for you know delay damages, contra charges, stuff that's outside of your control but you've signed up to it because you didn't read the contracts in the first instance. Standard form contracts, and I do a lot of work with, with NEC, they're drafted the way they're drafted for good reason. They're not intended to be heavily amended and it, it just creates chaos. Better communication, either orally or through the documents, will avoid a lot of the disputes. It's not cost plus, it's defined cost plus fee. The cost incurred may be defined cost, but it might be included in the fee, or it might be disallowed cost. I, I know most of the areas where, where contractors will, will tuck away money there, or, or, or perhaps I should say, uh, drop things out and reallocate them. The concept of collaboration is framed by the contractual relationship. You look at some of the profits that some of the big organisations are posting, which are eye-watering, and yet at the other end, you know, there's a supply chain that, that's going out of business at a rate of knots. People through the supply chain, it's not to say that they don't bring some of it on themselves. I think the first thing is understand the rules of the game. And one of the things I talk about when I do public speaking is that what we see quite a lot is people that, that are effectively on a rugby pitch. But the problem is they've got a football kit on and they're on a polo pony with a set of golf clubs. They don't understand the rules and they don't understand the industry and they don't understand the risk. So the first thing I would say is understand your personal appetite for risk. Construction is a brutal industry at times and anybody that is listening that Victor in the property industry doing a few refurbs, you're not in the property industry, you're in the construction industry. The actual people that are doing the work, the tradesmen, the subcontractors, the smaller, the smaller businesses, are quite often massively disadvantaged because they don't have the kind of the commercial management experience, the project management experience, all of that professional training. And yet they're the companies that are actually delivering the service. And, and, I, and I tell myself every day when I wake up that I'm like every day is a school day and I need to learn stuff. So if I need to do that, what chance does somebody that's just coming into the industry going to have? And, and that's why we see a lot of situations where these investors are getting absolutely hammered by contractors. And it's, it's just fundamental, it's wrong, taking the sort of the three plus decades of my experience, almost four decades this year, and actually converting that into a course where we can teach people the fundamentals of project management, really, really conscious of time. It's one of the reasons we use the 12 week year programme, and every day, every hour of every day counts, which is quite interesting when you said about I'm busy, but I always make time for you. I do, because I make time for things I believe in and that I'm passionate about. I understand the industry risks around the, around the deal or the scheme or what it, whatever it is you want to do and work out whether they're actually aligned in the first place. Because if you've got a very low risk appetite, 
moving into construction and do it, even if you're only doing refurbishments, you're in the construction industry, that's a high risk environment. So anybody that's moved looking to, to get into it from an investment perspective, just have a real sort of think about what is my appetite for risk? I'll tell you now, that thousand pound that you might save on some drawings or a spec will cost you five to 10 to a hundred times more in output construction costs through ambiguity and uncertainty. No one can price ambiguity and uncertainty and give you value for money. It's physically impossible. You can't give value for money if you're putting a load of risk in there because something's unquantifiable. We're doing it because we're all in fighting. You know, the, the procurement chain from top to bottom is fighting each other. The people at the top of the tree are getting the jobs done cheaper than they should. And we're all losing out and it's crazy. Everyone's polishing the turd on the way up. We all have to work to try and improve the margins. Because if we improve the margins, we take the pressure off the industry. There is a constant fear of bankruptcy, either your own or people around you. It, it has to change. Construction is a hard game. It's a complicated game, it's often complex, there's a hell of a lot to it and it deserves to be rewarded for what it is. Everything in construction is about reporting what's happening and it's about risk management. If you manage the risk properly, you're halfway to being successful. The abusive level of downward pressure on staff Throughout the supply chain, it's not main contractors, it goes to clients, consultants are equally as bad, it goes all the way through the train. When we lose sight of humans, individuals, their feelings, then we just become abusers. I'm quite an advocate on mental health issues and, and I'm happy to talk about it now because there are issues that affect a lot of other people in the industry around mental health and the treatment they receive. When I told them I had mental health problems, their treatment of me got worse. The judge recorded that they never offered me any help, any support or anything. That has to change. That has to change. For anybody that's unfortunately currently got a job from hell and is possibly about to go into the situation where they're engaging claims consultants and QSs and claims lawyers, then yeah, it, it, it would be absolutely a, a dream for them to have this information yeah. in this format. It's very, very simple. It operates on people's phones, but just by implementing it, it, the, the, the additional benefits to a business are enormous. One of the things that I've been working on with the, the latest tool that I've developed is is capturing exactly what um, has been installed. And as soon as it's done, record it. So what's happened? What's the cause? What's the effect? Payment. If you're going to create this underlying profit, you've got to recover all the monies that are due to you on the contract. I mean, if you look at it fundamentally, if somebody is doing a job, they should not be worrying about whether or not they're going to be paid and certainly not worrying about when that payment is going to come in. You know, that's a fundamental aspect of any commercial engagement. You know, in my mind, it's dead simple. Give the contractor a date for an application and tell them when he's going to get paid. Industry uh, does have this uh, heritage of, of payment issues. The payments weren't being made in full and they weren't being told why that was happening. We're trying to become a modern industry in a modern world and we're still toiling away with this procurement model. We're still 
plagued with low ball tendering and all this sort of stuff. This is why we're here. This is what we are all doing. And the industry has poor at its record keeping. It is still surprising how many contractors will sign something without necessarily fully understanding what that actually means. If you fail to prepare, then prepare to fail because you will lose this case. Prevention is always better than cure. The way construction works right now, we are democratizing it in a way that it has never been done before. Artificial bottlenecks, that's what's happening in construction as well. People with the ability and the intent to deliver are not being allowed to deliver on the projects. Contractor bankruptcies, misuse of funds in supply chain, money not reaching at the bottom of the chain, unforeseen revisions coming up. I would kind of like to stick out for the main contractor over here as well. Well, they don't have to worry about uh, subcontractor calls on Friday evenings for not being paid. Main contractors can really, really supercharge their growth. Uh, the maximum that they did last year was half a million of construction. Now they do, they are doing half a million a month. The developers are good at cash management. They are good at raising money. They are not good at construction. Contractors are good at construction, but money management isn't their best skill. That the money is coming from the developer, the day it's released from the developer, it will re hit their bank accounts directly. So they keep on working on the project for longer because they have the security of payment. The main contractor, subcontractor can add a payroll provider down the chain as well. So the payroll provider can actually see the money is going to come in from the developer direct. This is how I do it. And I do it on every job. And I do it to everyone. They'll, they'll take you on, they'll promise you X amount. First month you'll get it. Second month will be 5% short. You'll, you'll ask why, they'll come out with something. Well, it doesn't matter, it's only 5%, I'll get it next month. Next month, it's 10% plus the 5%. Now it's 15% you're into them. Now they start to get a bit aggressive, right? But you're thinking, hold on, you know, there's two years work here, we're only three months in, we'll sort it out. And before you know it, you are into them for so much dough that you can't walk off, right? And now they're bang on you. Though you're going in meetings and they are extremely aggressive to you and all that. So what they do, they'll, they'll take subbies to the point of almost completion of the job. And then they'll just knock them. And they'll just go, well, we've got an in-house legal team. Feel free to take us to court because we can outgun you financially, right? So gone, off you go. These are people, right, who wake up on a Monday morning kiss their kids, say, what are you doing at school today, you know what I mean, talk to the wife and go out, dry, you know, very dry, very carefully, let people out in front of them, very politely, then they walk through that gate at half seven and they've got total destruction of the subby on their mind. So then you'll get the really ruthless firms who will, who, who will go in and their business model is to bully the workers to have a bully on site running around shouting and threatening people and to knock the suppliers, right? And that's how they win all the contracts. And I know all this because I've worked for them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I've seen it done and I've had it done to me and it's still going on. But the decent subby trying to do the decent thing, but he's flapping because he's probably remortgaged his house to, to release funds to fund this job, right? Now his marriage is breaking down. Uh, he's under pressure all the time. His best mates who he brought on 
promising them loads of dough who we thought he could rely on. They've said to him, here, listen, you ain't paid for so we got to go. No, you can't go, you're leaving it. Uh, what am I meant to do? That's your problem. If you work with people who value what you do, who think and feel the same way that you do and believe in the same things that you do, that relationship will prosper. You've got to work hard to identify who those clients are or main contractors are. When you get to a kind of situation where you know the fit is not right, then the best thing to do is don't play the game. You know, it's their game, they change the rules. If the rules don't suit you, don't play the game. Came in, I said to my client at the time, just watch, further down the line, you're going to be in a call soon. And they got the call, and it was basically, love what you're doing, you're doing great work for us, but we need you to take a 10% cut on your fees. And my client's saying, but they love what we're doing, and you know, we're adding value, and you know, you really like it and your people like working with us. Yeah, yeah, we know that, but you know, everybody else is taking a cut, you need to take a cut. So I got the phone call from my client, oh, you were right, this is what's happening now, what do I do? I said, your call, your business, but if I was you, I would walk away because the phone call will come further down the line where they'll be asking you to take a further cut. And what happens is they become a bigger percentage of your turnover and then you're, you know, you're, you're caught you know, you can't walk away and you soon end up working for nothing. He took a very brave decision at the time and said, thank you, I'm walking away. And he walked away, yeah. that was fine, and it was absolutely the right decision for, for his business. Not that long after, this client came chapping on the door again and said, look, you know, we made a mistake there, really like to work for you. And, you know, my client did go back and start work for him. He was never taken advantage of again. It used to really surprise the hell out of me that, some of these big corporates didn't actually have a clear strategy and if it did it was in the chief executive's head and it wasn't shared or communicated to anyone else and, and I just you know as I say it used to astound me nothing surprises me anymore. So for me what really makes a great leader who's someone who's willing to develop their self-awareness and be conscious of what's important to them and the difference they want to make and is also conscious of how they impact others and how they engage with others because actually you can't really be an effective leader unless you can build relationships with others unless you can create circumstances where the others will resonate with you in some shape or form so emotional intelligence is so so important it sounds like it's a systemic challenge it's the whole system of how the industry has evolved and there's something for me when I hear you say about, you know, it's small businesses, livelihoods are at stake, families are at stake. That increases the stress levels enormously. So the potential for triggering, perhaps for being triggered and going into that reactive, emotional or defensive response is increased. People are very action orientated and just want to get it done. And, you know, organizations love those types of personalities and often they're the people that get promoted. But you've got to think about the people who also are able to engage with others and take people with them and just focus solely on, we've got to make sure that result happens, that there's a risk they become psychopathic and they will start developing leaders and attracting leaders in that ilk. I do a lot of work with women leaders and I know lots of male leaders who are fantastic and they have daughters and, they, and yet in the organisations they work they see behaviour from their colleagues that is not okay in terms of how they treat women. Um, I wrote my book about ego because so often ego gets in the way 
and um, our ego, we're in, we're in our ego 80% of the time. We, so that holding back and shrinking back is also our ego in action because for me, that's all part of our defense strategy, which is all what ego is. The other thing in this country, and not so in many other countries, is our planning requirements as they exist put a premium on all construction the planning one is what they call a development consent order and the other is through a hybrid bill which is an act of parliament they are very different when any secretary of state or anybody who's doing a major project or program the two things that people are always keen to understand is uh, when is it going to be done when is it going to be delivered and how much it's going to cost been doing for the last 15 years in the roles that I've done is leading major projects from a controls point of view through very tortuous planning requirements monitoring and control of the cost which is based on the schedule which is based on the scope and is based on the risks associated with delivering that in the environment we're delivering. Many times, people take the estimate and forget about the assumption. And when the assumptions are realized, because they will be realized at some stage, they feel, oh, we thought, we thought that that was in the price. And we've learned from uh, major collapses and Carillion being one of the biggest ones is where they have been very brutal with their supply chain. And in fact, their, their supply chains have funded their profits in many ways. It's so far off course. So the last 15 years for me in sustainability have been a disaster in the way that we are now branding leadership for projects which are doing tiny amounts compared to what we need to do. We have now crossed climate tipping points. There's absolutely nothing we can do uh, to avoid really, really serious climate shocks. Those shocks now are going to make coronavirus look like a tiny inconvenience. We have five years to get everything in place or we're cooked. There is no sign at all that we are reducing carbon emissions globally. In private conversations with some of the leading scientists, they're saying things like, we're not expecting the majority of humanity to make it through the next 30 years. So we've got to change our culture. We've got to start recognizing that we've got to behave decently wherever we are in the chain, and we've got to stand up for that decency. And we've got to be honest. The way the industry is pushing sustainability, there's no very little authenticity in it. So start being honest about what you want to achieve. So I think it starts with every individual being honest with themselves, not think that we've got 10 years, not think that we've got five years. We are living on borrowed time now. We could be months away from our first truly global climate shock. You know, my deepest impact is helping people build community or be a citizen of a community. How do you keep to your core values and your beliefs, but at the same time manage to innovate into a world where your skills are still desired? And that's why I'm, I'm really keen to have this interview now, because there are so many people that are potentially going into fear in the middle of it, coming out of it. And um, if I can pass any, any thoughts on how we recovered. The conversation about you in the construction industry is about when are you next available, rather than how cheap can you do this 
you are suddenly in a much stronger position with a much better cash flow. Understanding who your customers are or could be, understanding what they want and what their stresses and anxieties would be, and then matching up your skills and capacity and availability with what they need. Now your order book might be full as far ahead as you can plan. The marketing gives you many other advantages. It's not just filling my diary for the week after next. It's filling my diary for the long term. It's reminding your current customers and your past customers that you're still there and reminding them of the quality of your service. And it also allows you to brutally charge a bit more. You know, if you have this reputation for being always busy, but you keep communicating, you talk about the quality and you demonstrate the quality of the work, when it comes to those hard-based negotiations about your daily rate or the price of the job, if you have the perception or you create the image that you're in demand, you know what you're doing, you're not desperate, you can be much firmer in your negotiations. The minute you start to say no to people, here's what's going to happen. You're going to realize real quick that lots of people in your circle had conditions on their relationship with you. I don't want to upset the client because it's the only contract I've got. And if I lose that contract, I'm stuck. If you don't get real with what you really want out of life, there's a saying, if you don't know what you stand for, you fall for something else. I've trained um, Sparkies, I've trained you know, builders, I've trained lots of people and I always tell them like you're not going to compete on price with people, don't even go there, compete on value. What are you bringing to the equation? For people who work self-employed, work for themselves, wherever it might be, they're giving their families what's left of them, not the best of them. Once you sit down and get super clear of what you want and what you don't want anymore, that becomes your, your GPS. You've got to love yourself enough to protect your mental well-being protect your space and protect your time and energy you know my big passion is training and mentoring people as i'm an ex-psychiatric nurse one of my biggest passions is actually your mental well-being um, and I, I think personally um the, the, the mental well-being of entrepreneurial people is neglected and and people don't look into it enough and i think there are probably a lot of entrepreneurial people out there that are depressed and don't even know they're depressed and see that themselves as providers for their family and well, with all due respect, unless you are producing assets for them to rely on the income off of that rather than you being the asset, then you're not actually an asset. You're, you are a liability and it's a dangerous place to be in. And I'm, I'm saying that to everyone so that you, you wake up and you do something different right now. Look after yourself before it's too late. And then when you're on your own, it creates this internal conflict and you start resenting what you've done. And suddenly you start to fall out of love with your work. You start to fall out of love with your clients. And before you know it, just spiraling out of control, your relationships are out of sync, your health is out of sync and everything's just falling apart. And all because we, we don't love ourselves enough to say no. We don't love ourselves enough to step back and fill our own cup up and recharge our own you know, batteries and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, if your mobile phone ran out of battery right now, we'd really plug it in, wouldn't you? Just how many times do you stop to plug yourself in? That's all for this special edition of Construction Cashflow. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, Please subscribe, leave a rating and share it with your friends. And if you're looking for more resources, be sure to join the live chat at constructioncashflow.locals.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.